Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Bain. How you doing? I'm doing great. We got a good show today. We do. We are going to go into the baby world. We are talking to Rob Gardner. He is the founder and CEO of Juvie, which is a global leader in premium juvenile brands. And if you guys don't know him, he's the guy who's behind the baby on board sign that we saw everywhere for years. He's a really great guy. We're glad to have him on here. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So why don't we start out by telling us a little bit about, I know your second generation toy industry. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your career and how you got to where you are. Yes. Who are you, sir? <laughs> okay. My dad started out in Racine, Wisconsin, selling golden books. Get um, out of here. So, I worked for Western Publishing Company. Did you really? And I did PR for them. Racine. I went to Racine many times. So, you know, that's, I grew up in the toy industry with him doing that kind of stuff. And then it was at the start of high school when he left Western Publishing and went to work for Whammo. Uh-huh. And so I grew up doing, I did the Frisbee commercial, the Super Bowl commercial, um, a bunch of stuff. My sister did the slip and slide. So we grew up in the toy industry. And the funny story is I, if you go back to the toy building in New York, my father was involved when they took over the barbershop on the main floor and made that the Whammo showroom. Oh, so I don't wow. know if you go back that far, Richard, but. Uh, that's that's but, some great stuff. Yeah. So it was, uh, I got to go to toy fair as a teenager and it was, I can't tell you the exact year, but it was one of the years that the big blizzard and it shut the city down, <laughs> you know, back in the seventies, late seventies, early eighties, it was sometime right in there. So it was, uh, it just, it felt normal that I grew up in the toy industry, which is kind of a weird thing to say. That probably would have been 74, the big blizzard of 74. when there were, I think right. there was like 60 inches of snow on the ground in, in New York city. So correct. It was, it was crazy. So that's my background. I initially sold bananas for Chiquita Brands, was my first job. And then my dad had teamed up with uh, Charlie Searcy. I don't know if you guys know that name from uh, Texas. He was a big rep down there at the time. And my dad went to work with him. And then they brought me in about a year later to be a rep down in uh, the Southwest region out of Dallas. We had a showroom in the World Trade Center. I jumped into the business there and I was super excited about it and uh, kind of fell into baby products. And we were doing Teddy Ruxpin. Do you remember that back in the with Gabby Bear? and Absolutely, all Absolutely. Of course. So you go back to that was my start of my repping days in, in the toy industry. And Charlie had, you know, Charlie Searcy had a, a line uh Peg Perigo out of yeah. Italy that was the strollers and he dabbled in that so he could travel to Italy once a year ah, ah. business. And that's how I really got my start in the juvenile products as I started selling Peg strollers in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas. So tell us a little bit about Juvie and what you there guys you are doing. We got in, we started basically with strollers. You mentioned uh, the baby on board sign. I was actually selling strollers prior to that, prior to meeting Michael Lerner and Mike Bernstein with Safety First, and uh, I headed up the sales of that. And so we jumped into strollers first. It's been about 50% of our business. Uh, we've gotten into in-home products, which are play yards, walkers, bassinets. And then we also do a feeding line of bottles. 
we looked at it and said, if we can do a good job in strollers, why couldn't we sell the first tricycle to a family? So then we got into tricycles, balance bikes, and helmets, which has become a good category for us. And then I'm a father of three girls. And my oldest, the first Christmas, we got her some doll strollers and stuff. And they were so terrible. I told my wife, I go, I'm going to make some really great doll stuff. And that's really where our doll items came into play. And we've got one, our doll car seat has a YouTube video with 16 million views. Wow. Uh, I think almost 5,000 reviews on that car seat on Amazon. 88% of them are five star. Our doll line is almost like a family heirloom thing. And everybody told me I was crazy when I launched it, that they were too expensive and too nice and too good. And everything about them was wrong. I call it my 14 year overnight success. That's the way it usually happens. Right. The Wall Street Journal had an article the other day saying that the population growth is at a standstill. When we have a reduction in births, it flows through the toy industry. Have you been impacted by the drop in births? And what's the best way for an industry like ours to manage through a reduction in childbirths? One of my top concerns right now, and you know, the early numbers I've heard year over year for June was that the birth rate was down about 13% from June 2020. So obviously, if there's going to be a half a million less births this year, that's a half a million kids that'll never be one, never be 10, never have their eighth birthday party. You know, it's a big impact on everything we do. And so what we're looking at, we kind of take the long tail approach and that's why we've built out such a wide assortment and a big foundation for the business that we hope to do a great job with our customers. And then they'll buy, you know, one or two or maybe three different products from us that they maybe didn't know we had once we established that relationship. But we're looking at it as trying to grow our market share in each of our key categories. We still are small enough that I think we have a big upside that we can weather this kind of a, a birth decline. But for me, it's one of my main initiatives. Number one, as a father of four, my kids are the best thing I've ever done. And so we've got to make it look like more fun, I think. I, I, you know, in the heat of the battle, kids look like a lot of work, I think. And so uh, as, a, as a nation, as a country, and even as a globe, I think we have to embrace families and kids again. It strikes me in listening to you that you're very aware of the birth rate. And I'm not sure everybody is. And do you think it's because uh, you're closer to the first wave? Number one, when you look at the JPMA, the Juvenile Products Manufacturers Association, I'm on the board there, and what they've done with safety over the years and the, the how much better products are now than they were, say, when I got into business in the late 80s. But if, you have an, if you're having a baby, you can't leave the hospital without a car seat. So the industry is, is embedded in every step. You know, now they're looking at a travel system because you have to have a stroller that that'll attach to. And then all the different things that moms need in their in their go to the hospital bag and that, that kind of stuff. So we have to be aware of it and, and pay attention. I don't remember ever being in a car seat. I do remember that my younger brother had one that was sort of plastic strapping around bent metal that hung over the back seat. So they would have been perfectly positioned if we'd hit somebody to be projected <laughs> right through the windshield. And, and we, we laugh about that now because of the, all the technology and all of the systems that are that are really in place that, that protect the child really up until age eight about. 
we took it so far that our doll car seat, we actually crash tested it. It has latch attachments. So we didn't want that exact thing you just described, this projectile in the car in case of an accident flying around in there. So we took that really seriously. And I know we're the only doll car seat with uh, that's been crash tested. So uh, all those different things are very important, I think. And it's all integrated into the car, the technology and the, and the way the seats interact. So it's uh, really saved a lot of lives. Now, one of the things I know you're very much interested in the outdoors and you've instituted a program that you're calling Purchase with Purpose, which is you're donating 5% of purchases to the national parks. Talk a little bit about that, how that came about. I think that's a, a really interesting concept. I bought a Sprinter van in 2014 and told my wife that we were going to take our kids and see see America. I, I grew up doing road trips with my mom and dad. And so we took a 2015 road trip and saw some national parks. And then my wife planned almost a year in advance, a, a trip through Yellowstone, all the way to Mount Rushmore through Custard National Park. And we just, it was the centennial of the national parks. And we drove, I think, just shy of 5,000 miles. And we just talked nonstop about how could we get involved with the national parks. We saw what went on for the centennial and we committed on that trip to try to work with them. And so the idea was to take basic household products and tie them to a national park and to an endangered animal. And so initially we just looked at it as a co-branding and then we went to the National Park Foundation Summit and we left there totally blown away with the, number one, the companies they work with, what they're doing. And so we've produced children's books on these animals that we vet through the National Park Foundation and the National Park Service to make sure they're factually correct. And the number one thing we can do for our parks and for the animals is awareness. And so we, we've done a little placemat that goes in the high chair that shows what the different animals eat. Uh, the first animal was the southern sea otter. So we're taking regular household things and trying to bring the outdoors inside. And then we're hopeful that people will get outside because it's it's crucial to, you know, your mental health is to get out. And we we see it as a cause. It's really our heritage as a country. It's our history. There's 430 national parks now, and we want to support them. And that's what we're trying to do. And we're doing it in a unique way to try to get more awareness for these parks and the animals that are in them. One of the things Chris and I have talked about on the show is whether there's an average American shopper. And we've kind of tossed around the idea that there's at least two consumer groups. There's this very high-end consumer group that's older first-time parents, live in large metropolitan areas, have a lot of income. And then you have folks who are younger and more limited income. And so when you price your products and when you determine what to carry, uh, are you trying to hit an average American shopper or are you conscious of the fact that we're a bit bifurcated now? Number one, I I followed that article that you guys published and, you know, I've used it in my pricing discussions with the retailers. I am 100% in alignment with you guys that I believe that, uh, that it is bifurcated like that and that I think the line in there is some people want to spend more than $19.99 or $9.99. You know, you don't have to hit those... So what we've done as a company is focused on great product. 
And that makes us medium high price points and even in the toy side high. I mean, uh, when I showed this infant car seat that we've sold so many of them to the retailers, they said, oh, you've made it too deep. You know, it's really beautiful, but think about ocean freight and you need to make it less. And so I was like, no, that's the idea. They're all too shallow. The babies fall out. And so we went counterintuitive. And I mean, I'll tell you people, I brought in my stuff. People loved it. And I quoted them the price and they almost fell out of their chair. And they told me it would never work in a million years. People will pay for quality. Our philosophy is that people will pay a fair price for a good product. And that's our whole motto. We have the number one selling walker, I think, in the country right now. And it's $109. Mm -hmm. The the majority of them out there are like $39.49. And we don't have any toys on this. It's just, it's built great. And people will pay for that. And speaking of larger car seats, that's a, that's a big cube, so that's a bigger shipping issue. How have you fared during the during the last year with all the shipping stuff? I can tell you that a year and a half ago we were paying seventeen hundred bucks for a container, and I got quoted eighteen thousand four hundred this week. Ouch! Yeah, so, <laughs> um, wow! It's, uh, I don't like it, but we're we're biting the bullet and bringing stuff in. Without product, we're dead. So we're doing it. I, I mean, this last we we had price increases earlier this year, and a number of the toy buyers told me that our stuff wouldn't sell at these these new prices. Like it was the second go round of being told that it wouldn't sell, and we're uh, six weeks into the new price now, and we're starting to see some real traction, and the sales are picking back up. So there's no way that I can eat those kind of shipping costs. And, and not push it through. We're also getting raw material increases in China, you know, it, the most pressure I've ever felt in the last 15 years. So I have a kind of a waggish question. You go to the buyers and they say, it'll never sell, right? And yet it does. When do the buyers learn that your stuff is gonna sell? <laughs> you, you know, when you look at the toy industry, we're dabbling in it. We're really a juvenile products company and we have these key toy areas that I play in. I don't know. I mean, maybe we're not as big as I think we are when you look at the the brick and mortar business and the store business. But what we do is we we develop things that we love and then we are, we're perfectly happy being patient, putting them online, letting people buy them, review them. And then the business grows that way. That's how we've done everything is just put our money where our mouth is. And you have a pretty robust direct-to-consumer business, right? I mean, the, your website's gorgeous. It's well-organized. It's easy to shop. How big is that as a percentage of what you do? I can tell you that we're three times bigger than we were last year on our direct business. Wow. So it was not the biggest part of our business. We, sure. We're almost 100% online. So we see it becoming probably 20% of our business, 25% of our business this year. Everybody is kind of looking at that, and, and I don't know where it all goes, but it's very interesting when you can start dealing with people directly. It's a whole new world, and we're really trying to understand it. You are selling to a whole new generation of parents. So are these shoppers different than your experience with prior generations? And if they are, in what ways do you find it different? What we're seeing is we're looking past the millennials now to the zillennials, and we right. see that they're going to be completely different in how they shop, that they're going to look at brands differently, that, that they want to be individual, they want to have unique things that not everybody has, where 
this Abercrombie and Fitch group where everybody wanted to wear the same sweatshirt. It's changing like that. And we see more personalization and that those things coming down the pike. And we want to be the all-inclusive brand. I mean, if you see our images we do on our photo shoots and everything, we, 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 these are real customers. We don't hire any models or anything like that. We use actual customers. And so it's a changing landscape right now. And uh, we're trying to deal with it. I'm interested in this desire for personalization. When you're in a mass market consumer products industry, as you are, how do we do mass market personalization? Is that an oxymoron? I've been buying board shorts from Hurley. You go on their website, you build the shorts, you pick your fabric, you pick your colors, you pick your thread. You can even write something on the back pocket of what you want. And they ship directly from the China factory right to me and my house. And so when I look at this, we could do a seat insert that we could personalize with a name. We could do a canopy that we could personalize with a name. But we would have to have that equipment here in the States and make certain points of the stroller or a high chair that we could personalize. But I see a day coming when we build that same kind of system in our website where you could pick the frame color, whether you want real leather handles or a leatherette, whether you want a SPF 50 fabric or a recycled fabric. I think it's coming sooner than we all expect. So we're working with tier one factories. We've spent the last two years really enhancing our data capture and how we interact with our customers. So I think it's coming. I think you can do it, you know, almost from the wheels up. But I think short term, we can put someone's name, that kind of thing on a stroller sometime in the next year. I think we could do that. Beyond the personalization, what other trends or characteristics are you seeing of the the Gen Z or the Zennials, as you call them? I'm seeing a move to lightweight. Everything is about moving and traveling and getting around. And so The biggest trend I see is that people want things to be lightweight because you're lugging so much stuff with your kids. And then people want things that that last. And so we do a lot of durability testing. And then we also keep all of our spare parts on, on hand so that we can take care of people if they do have an issue. I live in New York City and you see... I I live right across from Madison Square Park, and when I'm out in the park, I see a lot of stroller brands. I see a lot of strollers, and there's a lot of brands. And some of them are as much lifestyle brands as they are functional brands. What are you seeing in the the trends of that? I know that that Juvie does come up on lists of hot stroller brands, but, but how do you feel that the consumer may be changing around all of that? Because a few years ago, there were certain brands that were like Jerry Seinfeld had and whatever that got in people and that <laughs> that boosted that. Where do you see the stroller as a lifestyle choice? Strollers are a budget buster. Okay. And so if you look at the buying pyramid and, and you look at the very top of a buying pyramid, you've got celebrities, you know, the, the very rich that shopping is kind of a job. You know, it's a, something they do and they they can even act like they don't enjoy it, I think. Do, do you know what I mean? And so there's a huge group of people right below them that really aspire to be them. And so if you take that top group, their number one concern is how do I look? Am I done enough yoga? Have I worked out enough today? Does my dress? And so then you take that group below it and those parents sacrifice how they look because their number one concern is how their kids look. Oh, that's great. So they end up 
spending all their money on their kids instead of on themselves. And I think that's a big part. And so you, most people don't go into your bedroom and see the crib or into your kitchen and see your high chair. But when you're walking down the street, that stroller is kind of a statement about who you are and your lifestyle and everything. So it's a complete lifestyle play. Okay, Rob, we're going to ask you the question we ask all our guests on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret. My secret today is that I was a professional Frisbee player. And I've recently checked into that and that Frisbee golf is the number one or the fastest growing sport in the USA. I think they're up to 200,000 members. Well, I'm number 900 back from the 70s. Yeah, so that's uh, my dad, even cooler, was number 170 in that whole group. So I recently played in my neighborhood. They saw some young kids playing Frisbee golf and asked if I could join and proceeded to smoke them all pretty bad. (laughs) They did not know how to throw a Frisbee. And so now I've got this group in the neighborhood that's gotten quite good because they go, okay, now we see how this is done. This is an aside. Has anybody created a Frisbee golf course that has the kind of look and feel of a professional, of a big-time golf course? I haven't seen, you know, the manicured like you'd get at a really, you know, tier one golf course. But there's some really beautiful courses now, and they're really getting a lot of play. It's a little different in that you see a lot of Frisbee golf holes through the forest where you would never play golf in the middle of the forest. I don't see the ground crews like Augusta with the flowers and the beauty of it all. But uh, the courses are very beautiful. But you have to think about Frisbee golf is free. You don't have to go out there and pay anybody. All those courses are free. So that makes a big difference. And so I don't know of a, a course you have to go pay to play. That maybe is something we should do. Maybe if these strollers and, and juvie doesn't work out for you, you can, you can make that your next career. Rob Gardner, founder and CEO of Juvie, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you. It's been really fun. I really enjoyed uh, the chat. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are coming up in the toy industry right now. And Richard, I'm going to trace our current shipping problems back to 1970. And let me make that good for you. That's when Toyota started creating just-in-time inventory for their manufacturing And that's taken, of course, over the last 40 plus years, it's become pretty much the norm. But the thing about just-in-time inventory is it really does demand that all pieces of the supply chain work effectively. And we have had kind of a perfect storm between COVID and ports and biblical floods and all sorts of things that have disrupted the supply system, which means it's really difficult to be efficient. And for people who might not know, Just-In-Time was an inventory management system. It's all about working closely with suppliers so that raw materials arrive as production is scheduled to begin, but no sooner. And the idea from an inventory standpoint is that inventory arrives in distribution centers just before it's needed on shelf and no sooner. The goal is to have the minimum amount of inventory on hand to meet demand, but it really requires careful calibration. And that's what we're talking about here. Let's take a second and think back to the 1970s. The 1970s and 80s were when Japan really was just 
beating the hell out of the United States. Or at least it felt like they were. They were outworking us. They were more efficient. We saw it most prominently in cars. People who were not around at that time, those didn't work as hard in the 70s and 80s as they did after the Japanese scare. And I remember someone saying to me after the United States had again become prominent and Japan had faded, they said, do we have to work as hard anymore? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think what Japan did was, was, Chris, incredibly impactful on the world, on the United States and how we do business. Much of what we learned from the Japanese is still in play today. And one of those very important things was just-in-time shipping, which calls on a company to be highly efficient. But it also helps if all your suppliers are close by. So I think just-in-time works very well in China, works well in Japan. But if we, the U.S. or Europe, and you're dependent on these very, very long supply chains, what we're learning is that if nature intervenes, the supply chain is very fragile and just at time ceases to work. Exactly. And one of the things that's so interesting, when I started in the toy industry and during the selling season, there would be discounts for people who ordered up front. So basically we would, we would help people stock their warehouses and the toys would be there. You'd actually book the sales in the first or second quarter, which meant that they were being shipped, but... At the same time, that inventory is a drag on the balance sheet for the retailer. So it's really a very tenuous situation trying to make the most of it. And when you're in control of all the elements of it, as you say, with being nearby geographically or having the, the stuff right outside your back door, so to speak, that's one thing. But when you've got the Suez Canal blocked up, when you've got a worldwide pandemic, it really does have an impact that is going to be far reaching, especially for the small companies that aren't going to be able to respond and meet the new challenges. I think the real question is going to be, will we, we in the U.S. and Europe resume just in time or due to these heavily increased freight rates? And by the way, everything I read here, Chris, is that these prices to ship goods are not coming down anytime soon. This is going to be with us for a while. So these disruptions and these increases in costs are going to force a lot of companies to really think about not just how they flow goods, but where they make the goods. Because to make a just-in-time system work, what we're learning is the shorter the supply line, the better. Does that mean reshoring to the U.S. and Europe? Does it mean uh, sourcing in Mexico? Or does it mean abandoning just in time or modifying it, continuing to buy from China, but going ahead and inventorying a lot more product close to home? I think what we're going to see is, as we've been predicting in other areas, we're going to see a kind of hybrid we're going to see elements of both. Where it's possible to do that, that's going to be great. It's going to require that people look at and analyze all of the numbers and see where things are going to go. Just in time works very, very well in reducing costs because you're not holding inventory. 
And it also reduces costs and not having to have as much warehouse space. But it's a really another very important function is it really reduces risk. If you uh, invest heavily in a product that tanks at retail, if you own a lot of that, you got a lot of markdown coming. If instead you are flowing it, uh, you can turn the faucet on and your downside is a lot lower. So there's a lot of reasons for just the time. Just the industry, the toy industry, and any industry, frankly, is going to have to decide, as you said, how do they modify it or replace it? And it's not that there's risk going away. It's that the risk is shifting. The risk is the retailers are not taking the risk by stocking up on inventory that might not sell. But at the same time, the manufacturers may not be producing to demand. It really does change their risk profile and shift a lot more of it to the manufacturers to try and see if they need to be ready to meet increased demand or where are they going to place their bets. And that's really what this is about. It kind of looks to me like this. If a major retailer wants inventory accessible, that retailer is going to say to the toy company, you need to hold the inventory in the U.S. The toy company will have the risk, not the actual OEM manufacturer in China. Oh, right. So this would be a heavy blow, I think, or, or certainly a management challenge to toy companies. How do they satisfy their major retailers without putting themselves in harm's way. Exactly. And as we've seen happen, the retailers have said, well, we we project we may sell, I'm just going to pick some wild figures here. We're projecting we may sell 100,000 pieces, but we're only going to order 25,000 now. But we need you to be ready to ship the rest of those, that 75,000. So really, as I was suggesting, the, the risk is back on the manufacturers to try and calibrate demand and be ready to serve the retailers and not leave money on the table and hopefully delight children. So it's a big challenge. Hopefully what we've seen in the past year is a once in a generation type of event and that as things smooth out, we're going to see adjustments to the supply chain. We're going to see new ways of handling the business. But you know what? The toy industry is still going to be here and we're going to still be here. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb, and you are listening to the Playground Podcast, and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and marketing and media agency, Chizcom, and we'll see you next time.